Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jennifer Lee, and we are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. So we recently had an episode with Dr. Himes about the treatment of IBD focusing primarily on medications, but as we all know, treating a child or teenager with IBD is so much more than just what medication you choose. So we want to talk today about all the other things that go into treating a child with IBD. And who better to talk about this than Dr. Sandra Kim? Dr. Sandra Kim is the co-director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center of the Division of Pediatric GI Hepatology and Nutrition at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh of UPMC. She's an associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and she is the past chair of pediatric affairs and current co-chair of the Government Affairs and Advocacy for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. All right, on to the show. On to the show. Dr. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on the Bowel Sounds podcast. We've been wanting to have you on as a guest for a long time now, so it's awesome that you're able to join us. This is awesome. I feel like I get to join the pantheon of like pediatric GI giants that have come before me. <laughs> Not that I'm implying they're older than I am, by the way, for those who are listening. Some of them are. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so we're, we're going to start with, I think, the most challenging question uh, for our mm-hmm. listeners who don't know you. How would you describe yourself in just one sentence? First of all, for those of you who know me, for me to say anything in one sentence (laughs) will be quite a challenge. That's why I emphasize one sentence. If I had to put this together, I would say I'm a very energetic, Mm -hmm. slightly neurotic, but ultimately optimistic person who really does want to change the world in some way, even if it's in a small way. Yeah. I I love that. Yeah. I think that's very accurate. Yeah. Uh, a lot of very compound sentence, but uh, that was great. Very nice. <laughs> okay. So we've started asking this question during the pandemic. So tell us about a book, podcast, TV show, or movie that you read, listened to, or watched recently that you recommend. So first of all, guys, I discovered Netflix over Christmas Eve, and I remember right. coming to clinic and telling everybody, Wait, and they all looked at me and said, kind of been around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> I discovered Netflix. I will tell you the great British Bake Off mm-hmm. is my new all-time fave. You know what I love about it? I love the dry sense of humor. I love the fact that when you see these amateur bakers making things, you see both the angst and the human stories, but also see how they look at it in a almost scientific a way. And finally, you know what I love is that even though it's a competition, there's a genuine warmth and humanity and that lack of meanness, quite bluntly, yeah. that you see in a lot of reality shows in this country. I love it. What um, about you, Dr. Lou? Okay, so... Um... By the way, congratulations, new dad. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So because we have a baby now and I'm up all hours of the day and night feeding this baby. So I've been watching on your phone or your computer on my phone. So it's usually like she's screaming and it's like, like, Emma, hold on. I got it. No, I played out loud. Wait, (sighs) maybe that's why she's screaming because Netflix is too loud. She's already screaming. I turned it on. It doesn't change. So um, there's a documentary series on PBS called Asian Americans. And if you really? don't know the history of Asians in America, you should definitely watch it. It is so no. good. Really? It, like, it's amazing. Yeah. It goes back hundreds of years to like the first 
Asians to make it onto the American continent, you know, whatever. So, like, PBS? Like, PBS. California and the laborers and yeah. the whole Japanese internment camps. Everything. I'm, yep. Up to now. You know, honestly, I think I feel like I've lived in a bubble most of my life. Yeah. And the fact that through all my life, this is when the past few years have really hit me, mm-hmm. especially in the past past 12 months. It's just, it gives you a gut punch, right? I mean, yeah. incredible. Yeah. So. And actually, we had a little forum here um, with like mm-hmm. the residents. It's just the Asian culture. We've kind of just like, even if something did happen to us, it's always like, well, you know, we have it pretty good. We'll just kind of like work right. harder, keep quiet. And right. uh, I think now we realize the consequence of not speaking up and doing anything is that we're a target. And so hopefully that's going to change now, but Absolutely. let's move on. Okay. So we Good recently night. talked to the one and only Dr. Jeffrey Himes about the various medications we use to treat children with IBD, but obviously treating IBD isn't as simple as just what medication to choose and what to monitor. So that's kind of why we want to talk to you about all the other stuff. So what do you think are the biggest challenges that our patients and their families face after we make the diagnosis of IBD? I'm going to say a few things from the parent perspective and then the patient perspective from what I see, knowing that this is not going to encompass what every parent or every patient feels are the biggest challenges. But I think the first thing is just that absolute concept of understanding when you're a parent that your child has a chronic illness. I mean, we are in the time of incredible advances to tell someone that your child has a chronic disease, what the consequences could be, and the treatments, but at the same time, that there's not a cure. I I can't imagine what it's like, just trying to absorb it. The second piece is as we think about, especially inflammatory bowel diseases, so with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, as we all know, it's not just about the GI doc. It's about the dietitians and psychology, and it could be other subspecialists, whether it's surgery or rheumatology or dermatology, ophthalmology. And when you start throwing all these things at families, it's, you know, trying to figure out how you navigate the healthcare system. For a lot of these families, this is the first time that they've been in a major medical center, physician's office outside of well-child care. The other piece that you have to think about is that fear that parents have that their previously healthy child will not be able to do the things that every child should do. Go to school, play sports, be in the band, have a life, have a quote normal life. And I think having the families know that your child happens to have a chronic illness, but that doesn't change the identity of who that child is. While we can say this, Just again, as a parent, I know just having them sort of navigate what that's like. And then I think sort of the final piece is I think there's guilt. Um, You know, as a parent, you, you always say, what could I have done differently? And I always tell families when I first meet them, the guilt gets checked at the door. Okay. You brought your child here. You entrust your child to us. So let's now partner together. So as a patient, I think, again, the big things are just comprehending what it means that all of a sudden go from going to school, playing your sports, doing the things you like, to now having to go to the doctor's office, having to talk about procedures, you know, talking about labs. And so it's almost a new language that you have to learn. And then on top of it, if you already have your fears or phobias, for me, for instance, I know what it's like to have a needle phobia. And so if you have some of those fears or phobias, learning how 
to confront that. I think with especially GI-related diseases or disorders, I think there is a lot of embarrassment or shame. How do you tell your friends what you have? You know, how do you explain this? And then I think, again, especially for teenagers and college-age students, you know, can I still go to college? Can I still have those dreams of a certain profession that I want to do or play a certain sport? Could I actually do those things? So I think those are just some of the things. The whole child's uh, temperament can change if you tell them, you know, this doesn't impact your dreams of becoming an NBA player or whatever, you know what I mean? You know, there are professional athletes who happen to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. And again, it's that language, you know, of um, you are not that disease. And I think Mm -hmm. emphasizing that from the get-go, and I'm reminded actually of Joel Rush, uh, one of the other icons of pediatric GI, once saying in the lecture, your language is so important because when you have families and, you know, patients who are struggling with this new diagnosis, that they know that you are not that disease. So saying that, humanizing that. And, you know, another um, sort of person that I sort of see as a role model and a mentor is Dr. Miguel Ruggiero, who's um, the chair of gastroenterology at the Cleveland Clinic. And he always says that uh, when he meets with patients, he asks them, what are the top three things that are important to you? You know, we always say we want, you know, deep remission and mucosal healing and normal looking labs, and we want you to grow and gain weight well. But for these, you know, for someone living with a chronic illness, what you want for them may not be what their biggest priorities are. So you have to ask that. When I did my GI fellowship, I distinctly remember the first time my attending asked me to lead a new diagnosis conversation. Mm -hmm. What advice do you have for trainees on, we know when we have a patient who comes in, we just did a scope that we are pretty confident is going to be Crohn's disease. How do you train your trainees to have that meaningful conversation with the families? So you're talking about at the time of the scopes, you've done the scopes, you look and you go, wow, this is Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, right? But we don't have pathology back. Right. So what I do is we go together if I scoped with a trainee and I just sit down with the families and say, okay, we finished the scopes. Your child is okay. He or she is in the recovery area, but let's, let's talk about what we found. Okay. So we go step-by-step step and I very objectively show what's actually happened. Cause I think the first thing is you need to give the objective information first, because if you already go in with the emotions, cause we all feel those emotions then that's going to already start that, that piece of that fear or concern. So I go through things objectively and I always tell them, we know that we still need to wait for that final piece. What the special doctors, the pathologist looking under the microscope will confirm, but this really most likely confirms our suspicions that your child has a chronic inflammatory disease. But before we even start going through what it means I'm just going to tell you all, there's nothing you all did to bring this on your child. So don't even start thinking, what did I do wrong? What you did right is you came to the office, you allowed us to take care of your child, and we are now going to partner together. So let me now tell you what it means if your child has an inflammatory bowel disease. So this is how we're going to do it. And I give them a timeline, how long it's going to take for the path to come back. We talk about how we're going to get the appointment set up. And we happen here, at least, have 
a phenomenal IBD nurse practitioner by the name of Whitney Gray, who actually is very involved with APGNN. So shout out to um, my colleagues there. And she will set up either a virtual or in-person teaching visit as well. So what we tell families from the get-go is that I know that you're feeling a little shell-shocked right now, but we are going to give you all the tools so that you know how this roadmap is going to look. And I think if you do objective, show compassion, and the first thing you need to do is say that while this is a chronic illness, we do have ways that we can treat, monitor, and evaluate moving forward. So I think, yeah, give the data, you give the information, but you always humanize it. I think that's That's great great. Yeah. Moving on to like one of the various issues that families can face after they receive that diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease. So as you know, like the introduction of infliximab and other biologics has completely changed the way we treat children with IBD. But we can't ignore that these medications are extremely expensive, even with the increasing use of biosimilars. So can you talk a little bit more about the financial costs our families face? So even stepping back, so we look at it from a societal standpoint, Mm -hmm. a healthcare system standpoint, and then the impact on the patient. Investigators in the field, and you know, folks that come to mind are folks like KT Park, Michael Kappelman, Bob Baldassano, um, as well as the Crohn's and Claudius Foundation, and other groups have looked at the absolute impact of cost. So the costs have gone up astronomically, but in a way that almost parallels the increase of healthcare costs on society in general. So a couple things before we even talk about IBD costs. So when you think about it, um, healthcare costs are almost 17 to 18% of the GDP in this country. That's significant and it's growing. Furthermore, the leading cause by far of bankruptcy in the United States is because of healthcare related costs, almost 50%. And that's known data. It's sobering data. So now we look and inflammatory bowel diseases. So depending on the statistics you look at, the impact on our society, the United States alone, is probably over 30 billion. And when you look at what's really driven that increase in costs, by far, it's the medications that have saved our patients' lives, literally. So biologic therapies. And that really is a big sort of leading cause, although there are other things that we have to think about, psychosocial comorbidities, the need for emergency room visits, other sort of factors. So I think we have to think about all that. I still remember the original 1997 New England Journal of Medicine paper when they talked about a new medication called infliximab. And I was a GI fellow at Texas Children's. And before that, you saw how kids did when they had very few options. So without question, this has changed things, but we cannot, we cannot ignore the fact that cost is a huge piece. So the Crohn's and Claudius Foundation um, a few years ago published a study uh, in 2017. So I was um, lucky to be a part of the group that was led by David Rubin that actually surveyed patients who live with um, IBD. So over 3,600 patients. And a couple of things I want to highlight is these are folks that are already invested and involved in the Crohn's and Claudius Foundation, have the access. So that already tells you that socioeconomically, they're probably a little bit more representative of folks that are middle to upper middle income. 96% had insurance, yet even with that, a quarter said that they had delays in their care uh, because of different factors. 
And by far the biggest factor was cost. And these are folks with insurance. So it's something that patients worry about. And then further studies have shown um, more recently that the cost is significant for an IBD patient. It's over twofold for both direct and indirect costs. And children actually bear a disproportionate burden. So over a decade ago, Michael Kappelman showed that the per annual IBD-related costs for children and teens with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease was higher than what you found with adults. And more recent studies from Penn and CHOP have basically shown the similar thing, not only per annual costs, but lifetime cumulative costs. So we're talking about individuals living with IBD really facing that impact, but as pediatricians, it should really speak to us because our patients really bear that disproportionate burden. And by that, their parents and their families. Are there ways we can help families with the financial burden of IBD treatment, especially for the underinsured child or the uninsured young adult? So this is tough. So I always say from the get-go, get your social workers involved. I don't pretend to know every nuance of what the options are, but they will. Mm -hmm. Secondly, know your state sort of law. So for instance, in Pennsylvania, children and teens with chronic documented illnesses can actually get the Medicaid wraparound plan. So even if you have sort of that commercial insurance, we all know that that's often not going to be enough because co-pays can be quite exorbitant. So we make sure when a patient here in Pittsburgh is diagnosed that they get the forms filled out to get those wraparound plans. The other piece is finding out what patient assistance programs are available. For a lot of the biologics, there are patient assistance programs like copay cards, et cetera. So making sure that they have access to that. And I know that you guys know that we're really lucky that we have social workers and we have insurance specialists who make sure that we do that. But I recognize that not every doc out there or nurse practitioner or nurse has those options, but just sort of knowing that those are the basic things that um, you should at least be aware of. So kind of going back to the idea of needing a full multidisciplinary team, mm-hmm. ideally to really address all the different issues, not just like the medical issues. Right. Um, a quick detour. Okay. So speaking of biosimilars, yeah. Um, yeah. as you know, so insurance companies more and more over the past few years, especially have been demanding that we sometimes change from uh, infliximab to a biosimilar or for, you know, even when we're starting out a specific biosimilar, you know, how do you explain to families that these biosimilars are just as efficacious as our brand name biologics? So we step back first and say, okay, so when we think about generics, I think some folks say, oh, biosimilars must be the biologic equivalent of a generic. I'm like, nope, generic, same chemical structure, basically. And this is where I'm like, I'm glad I actually took immunology in medical school. (laughs) But again, sorry, University of Michigan Medical School. Yes, thank you for teaching me basic sciences. But the bottom line is when you look at a biologic, the reason it's not going to be a side-by-side comparison structure is because we know that biologics um, just have more of that complex structure, right? Because they're antibodies. Mm -hmm. And so you have to think of like the different structures. So basically you're looking at quaternary structures, right? So um, I guess if you look at it from a 3D perspective, we know that they have quite that complex structure. But the bottom line is that what I tell families that biosimilars, even if they're not that identical quaternary protein structure, they still must be the same in terms of efficacy, potency, quality, 
and safety in terms of the actual mechanisms of that specific sort of originator drug that they are a biosimilar to. Mm-hmm. Is that, that makes sense? Yeah. So what I mean. So the other thing is when they go through clinical trials, they do have to show equivalent efficacy and safety to the original originator drug. The one difference though, is unlike that originator drug where they had to like sort of get, you know, approvals for each sort of different indication. If that biosimilar to the originator drug meets those equivalent efficacy and safety standards for one indication, it can then be extrapolated to the other indication. So that is sort of a big difference. And that's why biosimilars have been able to come to market more quickly than the originator drugs. Does that kind of make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then you talk about, so is it then cool for us to do this, right? And so when you talk about it, this is where then that concept of switching comes. Mm -hmm. So are originator drugs and biosimilars technically interchangeable? Well, no, technically not. But honestly, with the way that payers are pushing us to go to a less expensive alternative, we're asked to switch. So I'm going to refer folks to the Crohn's and Cladis Foundation position statement, which in essence states that one switch is acceptable, the foundation, and I think, and the docs and others, you know, behind that, we're not supporting multiple switches. And I think mm-hmm. that's where we start getting really antsy. Because let's say that insurance company wants biosimilar A, but then they pick biosimilar B the next year, then are we going to start then going originator to A to B? I have real problems with that because then we keep on changing. That's not a decision that the patients and the healthcare providers made in a reasonable fashion. That is not something I think any of us are comfortable with. And then the final piece is a lot of the studies have been predominantly done in adults, although there are some pediatric studies. So I think we need more data for pediatrics. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so moving past the medications for a little bit, can you talk through some of these barriers in terms of access to care? Absolutely. First, distance without question. You are asking folks to travel often hours. So we're already looking at time off from work, time off from school, plus the absolute costs of actually going long distance to a visit, vehicle costs, food, sometimes lodging, that can get expensive quite quickly. And while I'm not implying that every patient who has to travel greater distances may have uh, more or less financial disadvantages, a lot of times, especially if they're coming to an urban area, a lot of folks are coming from, for instance, more rural areas where they may not have as much of the means. And so I think first, we have to be sensitive to that when a family doesn't want to schedule an appointment as readily as a patient who lives in the suburbs 15 minutes away. It's not because they care about their child less or don't take as seriously. They just may not be able to afford it. And if they can't work, they can't put food on the table, they don't have insurance, and they can't pay for medication. So I think that's one big piece coming from far away. We, as the healthcare team, need to find a way that when families are coming from farther away, we have to better coordinate all of the visits to the best of our abilities so they're not making multiple trips. So I think there's the piece for the family that's coming from far away, 
And then there's the piece that we also need to be sensitive to that as healthcare providers. So I think those are the two pieces. One of the few things from this COVID-19 pandemic that has maybe changed how we can improve access is telemedicine, right? By having telehealth or telemedicine, at least folks can have better access without having to drive and take time to come and see their providers. So I think that has been a game changer. But the flip side is also remembering that not everybody has the best internet access. And so you have to sort of balance all those pieces out. I mean, you can't really yeah. do infusions over telemedicine. Yeah, right. Well, home infusions. I, that's true. So I think it's crazy. <laughs> so there was a study showing in 2004, uh, 86% of parents reported traveling over an hour to the pediatric yeah. subspecialist. Yeah, that was in that pediatrics. blows my mind. That's Anyways. really far. Yeah, but I mean, think about really Columbus, far. for example. If yeah. you travel to main campus and you live in New Albany, oh, it's one, that's already oh, 40 yeah. minutes. All right, this is round so trip. round trip, that's okay. over an yeah. hour. I believe that, yeah. In Pittsburgh, going more than 10 miles probably <laughs> could take an hour or two. You know, you have to think about this because it's not just the absolute distance. So you can live in the Midwest, flat roads, lots right. of lanes. But even being in a very busy urban center, again, 20 miles could still be an hour plus of traffic. Mm-hmm. So it's distance, but it's the time. And time is time. Yeah. It doesn't matter how far your car has to actually travel. Right. Um, and I think that's the piece. And speaking of data, the other sort of um, data sort of that I wanted to share was work that Stacey Kahn did a few years ago where they looked at the caregivers of pediatric patients mm-hmm. uh, with IBD. And they found that the caregivers' own careers were significantly impacted, right? Both of work-life mm-hmm. productivity, time spent at work. And when you think about that, the more time you are away from work for different reasons, you get a decrease in salary. You may have less access to better insurance options. You have decreased chance for promotions, and you may even lose your job because you're not there as much even if you have FMLA paperwork. So moving on a little bit. So along with your mentee and our now colleague, Dr. Hillary Michael, uh, you have been yes. an advocate for family-centered comprehensive care provided by multidisciplinary teams rather than just a GI doctor, as you alluded to. Can you talk about that a little mm-hmm. bit more? Like what are the key components of that kind of comprehensive care? So I'll tell you the key components in every pediatric GI doc's wish list dream team, right? Can we actually get them? No, but we're going to talk about what I think should be on that ideal dream team and then talk a little bit about data that shows why healthcare systems should actually support that. So besides the PHGI doc, you need to have for an IBD team, your nurse practitioner, we have a terrific one. I know you all have a terrific one as well. And Amy Donegan, you need to have a nurse coordinator to oversee all the different pieces, not just in terms of triage and calls, but looking at things like medications and authorizations. You need a social worker who can look at all those things to help you navigate and help the families navigate the financial barriers um, and access barriers to getting the care they need. I think behavioral health is crucial. I mean, we know that next to biologics, The biggest predictors, not only of increasing cost, but also just increasing sort of like all the different um, sort of comorbidities in terms of dealing with having a chronic illness are the psychosocial and the psychologic comorbidities. So you need to have a good behavioral health team in place Um, and a dietitian. You know, we're 
repeats GI docs. And we know that one of the markers of disease activity is growth and your nutritional status. So of course you need a dietitian to help you with that. And the other piece is as we talk about nutritional therapies, like exclusive animal nutrition, Crohn's disease exclusion diet, for some centers they use specific carbohydrate diet. I mean, we're relatively well-versed, but you really need a dietitian to truly help the families navigate how you actually make a nutritional therapy plan work in place. So you need those pieces. But do a lot of places have those centers? With a few exceptions, no. And that's where you have to look and see, is there data? So the UPMC adult GI group here has published in what they call Total IBD Care Medical Home, led by Drs. Miguel Reguero and Eva Sigethi. And what they showed is that when you have a medical home, you have a significant impact in terms of patient outcomes. So they found that patients with both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis pre and post being in the medical home had improved disease activity index scores. You also saw an improved cost of the healthcare systems because by having a psychologist and a dietitian and a social worker, a nurse coordinator, all and a nurse uh, practitioner, as well as the GI doctors all embedded in one situation or one center, um, there were less ED visits, less hospitalizations, less utilization of procedures. Those are sort of the big pieces and even decrease in, in surgical procedures. So I think those are all things that we have to think about. And hopefully with time, we are able to be able to find ways to show that data to our respective sort of healthcare systems so that they can support more that multidisciplinary team. So the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation 2020 Advocacy Roadmap talks about how the U.S. Congress and state legislation are making decisions that impact our patients with inflammatory bowel disease. Can you expand upon this? Sure. So the roadmap is a really nice graphic that you can actually print out in a few pages on a PDF. And so what it does is it talks about some of the major highlights of things like bills, but also has a basic timeline of when certain things are happening. So for instance, when Congress is looking into funding to like the NIH and the DOD, and we know that both organizations fund IBD and GI related research. So that's helpful to know, okay, February, or we have the annual day on the Hill, where that is a truly collaborative lobbying day where you have patients, their families, healthcare providers, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation staff all going together to lobby our congressional folks on things that are important to the IBD community. So the Safe Step Act, the Medical Nutrition Equity Access Act, funding for GI and IBD-related research, and joining the Congressional Crohn's and Colitis Caucus. So those are some of the things. And then there are going to be other sort of time frames of things that we need to look at that could be more state specific. So in addition to that basic roadmap on that, they will talk about, you know, sign up for the advocacy network. So if you sign up, just go to that link of things that you can do. They'll send you periodic emails and say, hey, these are things that are going on. So talk to your congressman, sign up for a certain like lobbying day. So these are new bills that are, you know, being presented to Congress. So I think those are things that those quick blurbs that keep you informed, but also give you opportunities, especially if there's a federal or even a state or regional sort of type of bill that you are really interested in being involved in and advocating for for your patients. Just to reiterate, so for the listeners who want to join the advocacy effort, what should they do? Go 
to the Crohn's and Clotted Foundation website yep. or go to Aspigan or actually do both guys, right? <laughs> so go and sign up to get those email alerts. That's a quick and easy way. That takes maybe a minute of your time. But then even going further, take the time to look at the websites of our respective professional organizations. I mean, NASPIGIN does a lot, you know, for things that are related to pediatric gastroenterology. Know what your foundations and your professional organizations are doing. Same thing. If you're interested in matters related to inflammatory bowel diseases, go to the Crohn's and Clouds Foundation website. Educate yourself. So sign up for alerts. Educate yourself. Look at some of the resources. And that way, when your patients ask you, you can then further engage them to work on advocating. Yeah, that's great advice. Are you on the listserv? Uh, no, but uh, it takes one minute of my time, so I can do that. Yeah. I have a minute. So, Dr. Kim, we have just a few more minutes left. We yeah. just want to kind of ask in closing. So looking back on your career thus far, what has been the most valuable advice you've received? And what advice do you have for us and our listeners? The best advice variations of how it was stated came from my grandmother, who is my ultimate role model and mentor and best friend, and Dr. Balfour Sarter, who has been sort of my main sort of career and life mentor when it comes to IBD and life in general. Balfour said, don't ever be a jerk. That's the one thing I won't forgive you for. My grandmother, I think, said it more eloquently, where she just said, you know, treat others with compassion and dignity and live your life with integrity, right? And so basically that's what you need to do. Best advice, doesn't matter whether you are pretty much anything, right? So do that. And then I think the final piece is Dr. George Ferry, who was my original um, PGI mentor when I was at Texas Children's as a fellow, um, knew that I was really struggling, quite frankly, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I knew I wanted to focus on IBD care. I just didn't know the best way to do it. And he took me out to lunch and gave me a couple books. And one was on effective leadership by John Maxwell, being a leader with integrity. And the second one was a book by Daniel Salmasi, who's a physician, uh, but is also a priest called The Healer's Calling, where it talks about how you take your inner faith and making you a better physician. So those were sort of the best things to help guide my career over the past few decades. And my advice to others, I think, um, you know, medicine has changed. You know, I I still remember when I was a fellow and uh, no one told me about peer-to-peers and prior offs (laughs) and how to sit there and get really cranky when you're trying to get medications you know, approved. Um, We didn't have EMRs back then. And now you feel like there's absolute overload as you're clicking boxes and making phone calls and signing papers. All of that has been intensified right now in the post-COVID-19 world, where I think we felt that we have lost so much control over a lot of things. But at the same time, I think what you need to do is when you see all that is to take a deep breath, step back, And remember that the humanity that we have in our lives, the integrity that we should be living our lives with, and why we decided to go into medicine. And I think sometimes when things come flying at you, um, thinking about why you did that. And I think that helps ground you and hopefully 
helps you deal with the stressors we deal with on a daily basis and also allows you to see your patient side of things when they may also be venting some of their stresses at you. Yeah, that's great advice. I I think it's important to have a good perspective on things and remember to not be be a jerk. jerk. (laughs) Yes, that's great advice. So, Any uh, final words for our listeners? As I said, I really know that there are so many incredible people in our pediatric GI field. Um, I feel fortunate to be a part of this community. And the fact that you guys asked me, it, it really means so much to me. So thank you. We should go sign up for that advocacy website. Yeah, right that was a great discussion. Inspirational. And if you're listening today, May 10, 2021, don't forget to join us on Twitter tonight for Monday Night IBD. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast or more. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASBEGAN Foundation. You can also get there through our website at www.naspgha.n.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the NASBEGAN Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.